Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content, or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hey there, I'm Sam Shansky, Program Director at Diddy TV. Thanks for checking out our podcasts. I'm here for just a couple seconds to introduce our guest this hour, the always spirited and always creative Patty Smythe who first made waves in the 1980s with the rock band Scandal, and who has since gone on to enjoy a successful career as a solo artist. One interesting note to make is that Patty was a huge star on MTV in its heyday, and Diddy TV draws a lot of inspiration from those early MTV days, so it's kind of a full circle affair, which we love to see. With that in mind, I'll hand it over to Amy Wright, who caught up with Patty over video call to discuss her 2020 LP release, It's About Time. Enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Hey, Patty, welcome to Diddy TV. So glad to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to see you. So how are things going with your family? Every, everyone okay? Everyone good this year and hanging in there? We're doing as, my family's doing as, as well as possible. I mean, I'm lucky that we haven't had any, you know, any COVID in our immediate family. Um, so, but it's such a strange time, but everybody's okay, thank goodness. Now, are your kids old enough to to work and support themselves or, you know, are they out there doing their thing? Are any kids old enough to be out there supporting <laughs> themselves? Um, Never. In this gym? Yes, my kids are older. I've got my youngest is 21. She's a, exactly. She's a senior in uh, in college now. So, yeah, they're all grown ups. She's my baby, but she's pretty much a grown up. Yeah, well, as you well know, they, they never grow up. We never grow up. There's always someone ahead of you. And, you know, let's go back a little bit because I want to get to the album. It's about time. And, and it, it's I listened to it five times yesterday and I love the new album. And uh, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got here, because I just think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, when you grew up, were you singing? I mean, when you grew up, were you playing music, singing? What was what was that like? When I grew up, my mother, you know, my mom was sort of like a pretty wild character, ran away to the circus when she was a teenager, and then, you know, taught like fitness. Um, you know, my, my parents split up when I was two and a half, so I was ra- my sister and I were raised by a single mom. That's the 60s, you know, that shit didn't fly then. I mean, we were literally the only person that, only, that had a single parent. And um, she started running coffee houses in the village when I was like six or seven. So I was always around music. And I really, I found her music collection before, and she had a pretty good music collection. She had Frank Sinatra, Nina Simone, Barbara Streisand, uh, Tony Bennett. You know, those were people that, uh, she probably said had Jose Feliciano, who knows what else, but most of those singers were great phrasers and really good singers. So it was, you know, I, I would, I remember crawling around through our big, you know, plants and singing along to all of her records until the Beatles came out. And then we demanded, my sister and I, that first Beatles record, you know, so that was when we were like, get us our own music. And then that changed everything. So I was always, it feels like, you know, that was such a great time to grow up because it was such great, you know, mixture of music and top 40 radio. I mean, you went from like, like I said, you know, Strangers in the Night to Get Off of My Cloud to, you know, Son of a Preacher Man. I mean, it would just great music from every genre. So 
I grew up singing all the time to the point where people were like, shut up, stop singing. You know, it was annoying how much I sang. But I don't think my mom figured out that like, you know, maybe she should have thrown me in a piano lesson, you know, which she didn't. But it all worked out okay because I, I learned instinctually. I wasn't really trained. So when were you in your first band? Because you were pretty young when you were in Scandal, and we'll get to that. But um, were you in a band in high school or right after, right out of high school? You know, I have a very crazy upbringing and background. I was already living on my own I, when I was 16. I had my own apartment and a job. So I was going to school to this place called City as a School. It was for troubled teens, you know, because I couldn't do the nine to three. So I took science classes in the Bronx Zoo for an English class, for English credit. I, um, I was a teacher's assistant in the kindergarten, preschool. So I had a sort of a, that was my high school. So at 15 and 16, I had a little band that I put together and it was like a trio. And we were playing kind of like, you know, like Led Zeppelin-y kind of rock stuff. And before that, my very first appearance, I would say, my mom would say, was at Pips in Sheepshead Bay, because I have a connection to comedy clubs for some reason. But Charles, uh, George Schultz was this guy who ran Pips. And so he let me open for, um, oh my God, you know the, you know the, um, the comedian who Jim Carrey did? My cat's coming into the, my cat's gonna walk in on this, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jim, who did Jim Carrey do that comedian? I'm forgetting. What is his name? You Andy know, who Kaufman. Did the Elvis impression. Yeah, Andy Kaufman. I opened for Andy Kaufman. I was fifteen. Okay, and oh, he's that's doing, crazy. Yeah, and he's doing Mighty Mighty Mouse. I'm like, what is happening here? So, yeah, so that was like my first show. <laughs> and then, well, and like, started, like a year later, I opened for my friends who had. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you were in New York City area, so that's where everything was happening, right, at that time. I mean, that, that was the scene. That's where you wanted to be. I mean, I think New York City is where you always want to be. It's not, it doesn't have great music scene right now. You know, I mean, pre-COVID, you know, the music scene, because it, it's become, it's just, it just became too expensive to be here, which is sad. But that was a crazy time in New York, too. Like, the 70s weren't ex exactly our high day, you know, our the high days but it was all art and you know and punks and I mean it was just everything but for me the village was sort of almost over you know the folk house thing but I had a lot of influence on that I saw a lot of blues music there so I did not have your average upbringing is what I'm trying to say <laughs> well yeah it sounded like you were you were already living the life of an adult at 16 years old so you were out and about and meeting people and and, it, you know, you were, you were doing, you know, you were in the scene. So uh, were you already, how did you get hooked up with Scandal? What's funny is I was in the comedy scene. I wasn't in the music scene. Like I had, you know, I was in some music scenes, but I was more like, I was working at Catch a Rising Star in the comic strip. It was weird, my, my convoluted road to Scandal. And then I was, you know, I was waitressing and singing and the payphone rang on my day off. I was at my, the place where I worked because I was picking up my friend and we were going to go out clubbing. And the payphone rang and it was Zach Smith. And he had been trying to reach me and had an attitude because he had like left messages with people for me to call. And I was like, meanwhile, I was listed in the phone book, dude. You know, like he never looked in the phone book. So I wasn't that hard to find. 
So we had a, we kind of had like an argument the first time we spoke, literally, and probably the last time we spoke. So that was, there was always a sort of rub here, there, but he was very smart. He had a bunch of great demos that he had done with Elton John's band. He had literally hired like Paul Schaefer and Elton John's band to cut Lying On You. And I can't even remember the other songs because Goodbye to You we wasn't recorded yet. It wasn't finished yet until I met him. So we just started, I, you know, I, I put my voice on a few of his demos. We started playing at the Ritz every Tuesday night and we made a video of Lying On You. And that's the video that everyone always asks me about because John Bon Jovi is 17 and pretending to be our guitar player because he stayed in an apartment and on top of the power station. And that's where we, you know, he was just a cute kid. I'm like, hey, will you just be in our video? And he's like, okay. So that's how John, who I, you know, I still see a lot, but that's how he got to be in our video. And then once we gave uh, Columbia the video, they signed us. So we were doing like demos for them. And then they were like, I don't think we need to do demos anymore. Well, did that video end up on MTV? Was that at right around the same time MTV was no. kicking off? No. No, but that was where Zach Smith was very smart. And, you know, he had, his wife was an editor at Vogue. So we had this fashion guy do it for us. No, Lion on News on YouTube now, but no one ever saw it before that. It was, it was something that we sent to the label. And then our first single wound up being um, Goodbye to You. And for whatever reason, it was too much like Lion on You. Lion on You was kind of the same. I'm just sort of jumping around in the demo of the Lion on You video. So when we did the Lion on You video as the second video of that, of that EP, we did something else down in Florida. I'm wearing that blue dress and stuff. So, but you can see it now on, on YouTube because people ask me about it a lot. It's like, is that John Bon Jovi in Scandal? That's really, that's really serendipitous. I mean, I mean that just to have run into him randomly and he's in this video. Um, you know, MTV was so crazy back then. It was really breaking artists. What do you think MTV meant to anyone who was starting out at that time? Well, I mean, for somebody like me and us, you know, as a woman, MTV was, I mean, it definitely became apparent that it was a little bit too white. Let's just say that, you know, that, that started to become apparent after a few years. But in the beginning, you know, because it was like rock or whatever, more than pop, or I don't know how, what, how they were selling it. But, you know, when I went on a, a promo tour to these radio stations, they played one chip a week. That's it. And so if, if another female artist had a record out, I didn't get added to the radio. That was it. And I heard it at every radio station. This is like 1982. And I, it was mind-blowing to me because my mom was the boss of all these clubs. You know, I didn't really get the gist of how sexist kind of the world was and really how sexist the music business was. So, I mean, if you think about that now, there's so many women on the radio in, in a lot of genres. It's probably, rock is still pretty male dominated with MTV because we, we weren't really getting added at the same time. So, you know, Goodbye to You wasn't tracking high, like it wasn't getting high on the charts. But when we went into heavy rotation on MTV, Goodbye to You never tracked that, that high on the, on the charts. But MTV made us, you know, like a really known band. Like everyone knew that song because we were in heavy rotation. If it wasn't for MTV, I'm not sure we would have had any success. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe not until our next record, if our label had stayed with us. I remember that because I was uh, in high school and any party we went to, everyone just watched MTV. That was what you did. You turned on MTV and that was your entertainment. 
And so I knew every single video that was, like you said, that was in heavy rotation back then. Yeah, MTV was, it was uh, I remember when it first came on because it was before I had a record deal and it must have just been the year before my record deal because they didn't have commercials. It was amazing. It was really fun. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I count myself as very lucky to have been a part of that and, and I owe my career to them, really. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. The fact that I wasn't long. afraid of cameras <laughs> helped. That that is that is helpful because not everybody felt comfortable yeah. making making videos, and so the the people who did do it, it was amazing. They went from obscurity to stardom, and uh, I'm sure that that path had to be crazy. What was that like for you to go from, you know, working as a waitress to uh, being a, a rock star? I mean, I, I never really, you know, had this like monster thing like my like my husband has where like, you know, you can't go anywhere in the world, okay, where someone doesn't know him. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, I'm immensely proud of that, but it's annoying too, in a way, <laughs> you know, you, I, I liked, I, I, it was amazing to hear my songs on the radio and it was amazing to be recognized and stuff, but I always liked to be under the radar when I was off the stage, you know, of course I wanted the attention when I wanted it. And then I liked to sort of, because as a songwriter and stuff, you know, you're always just watching and you want to kind of want to blend in. So I always had this sort of like tug of war with, uh, you know, wanting to live a life and, you know, and being a, a singer, you know, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of like, wow, I'm going to be famous now. You know, it's just like, wow, they like my singing. You know, I made a record and I'm on the radio. So you know, I, I was a little bit slow on the uptake. So it wasn't like massive, uh, you know, swamping of, you know, fans and stuff, but it was pretty great. It just, it was nice. I mean, in a way, like I said, because there were musicians around me all the time growing up, it wasn't like, it didn't seem in my mind like such a big reach, you know, like a, someone from a small town in o Ohio or even in New from New York, whose parents were, you know, a lawyer and a, a housemaid. A homemaker or something like that, that would be a huge leap for me to have rebelled and done something crazy would have been to become a lawyer or a doctor, you know, not to go in the music business. That was like a pretty natural thing for me to do. It's almost like it was set up. It was like a ramp. And I happened to, you know, love to sing. So what, what was, so what was it like to be um, a woman in the music business in the eighties and even nineties? It was, I know it's different than it is now, but was it, better? Was it worse? Or was it just tough? I mean, what was that like? Yeah, I don't want to say that it was hard. But it was different. It was difficult. You know, there, there were there were parts of it that were difficult. So the one part being you couldn't get added on the radio. Um, and then if I said no to something, I was a bitch, you know, um, and, sure. and the label would ask me to do stuff and weigh in on stuff but they would never weigh in on with a guy, never. So there was that. And like, I remember we were touring and I was doing four or five shows a week and I didn't want to get up and do 7 a.m. radio shows because I, I couldn't sing that night if I didn't get enough sleep, if it was four nights in a row. And so I'd be like, look, I can't do it. Let's have somebody else in the band do it or whatever. So, you know, that, they were really pissed at me for that. And, you know, so the few times that I said no, which was not very often, but that was enough for me to be like difficult, you know, because sure. I wanted to be able to sing. Yeah. So, I mean, th there's that. And 
I don't really know what it's like. I feel like it's gotten better. I feel like there's so many women who have top selling records from Taylor Swift to, you know, Katy Perry to the hip hop, you know, Cardi B, whoever. It's like, it's a very different landscape now. I mean, there were four other chicks in rock and roll. I mean, and there's no chicks in rock and roll now, really. I mean, that I can think of that are new. There's Pink, who's sort of pop rock. I love Pink, but, you know, there's not a whole lot. No, they're, they're, you were one of, you were a trailblazer. That's the crazy part. And um, in a man, very much a man's world, rock was definitely male, male dominated, like, like you said. Uh, and then, of course, you went on and got married and you had kids. What was that balance like for you as a female? Because a lot of men don't have quite the same requirements <laughs> that women do when it comes to, uh, getting married and having kids and, and being there for your kids, et cetera? I think it's harder for women to work if they have children. There's just no yeah. two ways about it. I don't, I don't give a shit what anyone says. That's the, those are the facts. And you really can't do it all and have it all. You can do a lot, but you can't really do it all. And for me, when I had my first kid, you know, the producer I was supposed to work with stopped returning my calls when he found out I was pregnant. I mean, it was like, but they were, they were really pissed and, um, and it, you know, it set me back a little bit. Like, I remember them thinking like, you can't have a kid. You know, I was young, I was young, there's no question, but I was like, I'm having a kid and I didn't really see what the big deal was. And then, you know, I put out a record, whatever. I, I did that never enough record, but you know, I was, that wasn't, I should have waited until I had my kid and then made that record because I was, you know, singing, with a six week old baby. And I, I started the record when I was pregnant and then, you know, did the vocals when she was six weeks old. I mean, it was crazy. I was breastfeeding in the studio. I mean, it was, I think they're still traumatized from my breastfeeding. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Uh, all those engineers and assistant engineers. So it was, that was something that was not like you know, if, you, if a guy has a kid, it's like nobody really cares because, but when a woman has a kid, you know that it's going to take some of her attention. It's not going to, it's not going to be just a little bit of attention. It's going to be a lot of attention. So it worked out though, that I found my way it took, but it was a long time in between that 1987 record and then until 1992 till I put a record out. But I had recorded those songs and that record three times before I got to Roy Bitten. You know, and I, I wrote No Mistakes. That was a newer song there. But I had Sometimes Love for a while. And I just kept trying. I went and worked with Barry Beckett in Nashville. I cut a bunch of tracks with him and the Memphis Horns. and Because I wanted to do something that was more organic and soulful. And so I was like trying. Ruby wasn't in my way of making the record. It was more like just trying to figure out like what I wanted to do now, you know. Um, I didn't know that I was going to be a rock singer. I didn't set out to be a rock singer. You know, I always liked, you know, rhythm and blues. And I mean, I loved rock and roll and Led Zeppelin and all that, but all the rock that I liked was based in R&B music. You know, it was all the guys who grew up, you know, the British guys listening to American music. So I accidentally wound up in the rock and roll world. I, I didn't know that was going to happen because I said yes to Zach and we put this band together. You know, here I was. So I was trying to navigate my way through there. And after 92, you know, it still impacted me. I mean, my daughter was five years old or something. And I was in, I remember being in England and she was, I was supposed to go to Spain to support sometimes love to stay enough. And she just had called me one time too many crying. 
And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going home. And they were furious at me. I mean, I think they pulled the record in Spain, whatever happened. But I mean, it like I took made a major hit for that. But, you know, I just wasn't willing to sacrifice her. You know, like, I don't know if that means I'm not ambitious enough, you know, um, because that's what that that's what it comes down to. That's what you're choosing. And for me, it's like I, I, I chose her and I ultimately chose my kids, I think. Now I don't have to anymore, but there were times when I had to. Yeah, I think it's a it's a decision that so many parents have to make, and mostly women on in that end from a career standpoint. But it's you know, but it's a decision that 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 folks have to make. And in your case, you weren't in scandal anymore. You'd moved into a solo career, and was that when you transitioned to a solo career? Was that a little bit scary? Was that uh, hey, it's me now. It's all me, and not with these other guys. And like yeah, it was, it was harder in a way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really want to be a solo artist. I just, Zach and I just, we just were oil and water. And he was so controlling. And it's like he wanted a, a woman lead vocalist and somebody who was good. I did my job, but it threatened him then because, you know, I was getting attention and we were getting attention. Of course, they want to talk to the lead singer. That's how it is. You know, even though he didn't want to be the lead singer, he was afraid. It's almost like he fulfilled the prophecy. You know, I wasn't, you know, I've had the same friend since I was 13 years old. I mean, I've been toying with the same band for 13 years. Keith Max still plays with me. That's 30 something years later. It's like, I'm somebody who will, you know, stays with my friends. I don't, I don't change with the wind, but I just, so it's almost like he fulfilled the prophecy. It, it, it forced me because it stopped being fun. And I, you know, it was only a year into it. It's like, come on, it's got it. still got to be fun, man. So I think that's what happened. I, I just, and then all of a sudden I'm like, uh-oh, now I have to make all these decisions on myself. Now I have to fight with the producer myself or not fight, but you know, like you fight for certain things that you want or songs that you want or, so yeah, I wasn't, I didn't think it through. I just felt like I couldn't work with him anymore. You know, certain members of Scandal left and then that was when I left because my drummer left before I did. And uh, that, that just broke my heart. So yeah, it's way harder because there's no one else, you know, the, the heat is on me. I, I still feel it. I mean, you feel it all the time. Like I better make the right decision because there's no one else to blame. I can't blame it on the drummer or my partner. Are you the kind of person who has creative control? Are you collaborative when you're recording or in the studio or how, how, how does that work? Is, is I'm like old school, you know, I, I mean, I know they make records. There's so many ways to make records now. And so when I made that Christmas, I made a little Christmas record, like in my apartment and with at Keith's house, like five years ago. And that was something that we did, uh, when, but he did a drum track, one drum track without me, and it still bothers me because I always sing through basic tracks. When I did this new record, it's about time. I went down to Nashville and they were like, you're gonna sing through every take we do. And I said, yes, I'm gonna sing through every take we do because I want them to be playing to me, not to be playing to like chords and a click track. You know, they need to be playing to me. And I, and I also sort of, it gets, it lets me practice the song, you know, and get and figure out what I want to do with it. And then I can figure out if like, I like the drum groove or if it should be faster or slower. So yeah, they were surprised by that because I just think, you know, now 
tracks are just brought to artists and they just sing on it, which is fine. It's just, it's just not the way that I do it, but it's fine to do it that way. So, yeah, I mean, with Dan, he, Dan Huff is such a great producer that, you know, I let him, if, if, if there was any issue or whatever, you know, we just talked about it. It wasn't, you know, I had already flushed those songs out pretty well demo wise and and some of those songs i had for a long time so we were just we had to work out a few things but it was pretty easy with him and you you had taken a sort of a hiatus you weren't you weren't completely not making music you had written a song and and grammy won a grammy nomination for uh, a, a a track you produced for a movie and uh like you said you'd done a couple of other things in between but there had been kind of a, a bigger break between your last album. What were you doing? Raising kids or? I don't know what the hell I was doing. You know what? I was, I put out a greatest hits record in 99. I was going to come back to work in 99 then, right? Because, and there was a song that went on the Armageddon soundtrack that was on that greatest hits and remastered and I was ready to come back. I guess I met John in 93. So that was like five or six years later because I was writing songs all through it. And then I got pregnant with our last child's. <laughs> which was a bit of a surprise and they were like oh my god come on so that and then I was I didn't know I was going to be on four months bed rest it was a whole Michigas I mean that was like a definitely crazy thing so that set me back a little bit and you know then I I mean to tell you the truth I just was drowning in kids you know my husband had three kids from his first marriage they were always with us because his ex-wife was having issues and so we had I went from one kid to five kids in a year. And then I had, you know, two and a half years later, I had my sixth or sixth kid. So I had six kids in this house where I'm standing now. And, um, you know, I was just drowning. I just was like trying to keep my head above water and, you know, sometimes sinking like a stone and, you know, sometimes keeping my head up. But that was, uh, that was a crazy great time. I mean, I was madly in love. But, you know, we were always, we started with four kids. I mean, that's not usual. So it was pretty crazy. And yes, I traveled with him a lot. I mean, I traveled when the kids were young, but then I had to be home while he traveled all over the world. Like someone kind of had to stay home. That's what I mean. And, you know, mom stay, you know, sometimes dad stay home, but I wound up staying home. And then years go by and you don't realize how much time is going by which is crazy. Well, with six kids, they're always either in school or activities or, you know, there's always something going on. And if you have one of them, it's, it's a lot. So if you have six, then you're basically trucking them from pillar to post and <laughs> <laughs> to uh, play dates and whatever else. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, New York City, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's a, yeah, to raise six kids in New York is crazy and we're just crazy. You know, I mean, I had a big life, a big, messy, crazy life. And I would do that anyway. You know, I would step back into my life for a little while. That's where you get your, um, I feel like that's where you get your songs from, you know, living your life. And that's where you get your inspiration from. But when they kept saying it's been 28 years, I'm like, Jesus, has it been 28 years? Like it just, and it feels like time is just going by so quickly now as we get older, which I didn't even know I was going to get older. I don't know what I thought, but I just thought I was going to be 35 for the rest of my life. So all of a sudden it's accelerating. And I'm like, I just can't believe that much time has gone by. And I had said, you know, I've been touring for the last 13 years in the summer 
doing anywhere from like 10 dates to 30 dates a summer. And I would, and people would be like, when are you going to make new music? And I'd be like, I'm going to do it this year. I promise. And I, and I was lying. Like finally I was like, you, you're doing it girl. And when I wrote drive, which I think I wrote a couple years ago, I was like, that's it. This is, this is the, this is the, my first brick in the wall to coin a phrase from Pink Floyd. So, you know, like, and that was it. I was like, I'm making this record. And luckily I ran into Dan Huff at a BMI thing. And I just hit him up. I'm like, I just want to do six songs. And he goes, do you want to make a country record? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) But then he thought I was like another person coming to Nashville trying to break into country, you know, which I wasn't trying to do. I mean, I've always loved, like I said, country music or whatever, R&B music. So I was lucky that he said yes, and he squeezed me in. (laughs) Well, what are some of the life experiences that you're describing that ended up in the songs on this album? Well, I mean, one of them is a song called Build the Fires, a song I wrote about John and I. And uh, that first started out being called Surprise, because I was so surprised after like 20 years that I still, A, was married, and B, really liked the person I was married to. And we still sort of had this kind of, you know, fun together and we're really connected still. And I just found that to be like mind blowing. And, you know, like I said, I, I had a very bohemian childhood. You know, I was raised by a single parent. I was out on my own really young. So for me to be like married to somebody and stay married and sort of be a couple, that was, I, I said this recently in an interview, it was like, that was like a brave new world for me. This was unknown territory. So I found it interesting. To most people, it's like, oh, you know, they, they know all about that, but I didn't know anything about it. You know, it was, uh, it, there was a lot of things in there to inspire me. And, and, you know, the love of a child, for me, Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough was a song that was inspired by having my daughter Ruby, you know, and thinking this is not negotiable. Like there isn't, you know, there's no wiggle room. Like you're in, and you're in so hard and so deep that it's terrifying. And... So that's where that song came from. And then I was getting divorced from her father and all of that played in it. And then on this record, Drive is a song that I wrote about, it was sort of a love song to my sister and to our childhood. I felt, I've said this a lot, and sometimes I wonder if I should tell people what songs are about, you know, because I want people to interpret them themselves and I want them to mean to them whatever they mean to them. So, you know, finding a picture of us when we were kids, which is the, the opening line, could be your, you know, you and your husband when you were kids, you and your sister, you and a, a childhood friend, somebody you lost along the way. And, um, and so for me, I felt this huge chasm between my sister and I. I, I had lost my sister. She's my witness. She's my older sister. And we had so pro- such profoundly different lives. And I couldn't reach the divine. And it really, it, it hurt. And it bothered me. And so when I started the song, I wrote it with this guy, Gerald O'Brien in LA. I had no idea what it was going to be about. We just had the melody. I came up with the melody. He had the chords. And, and then I came back to New York and I found that photograph. And I was able to write about something that was bothering me. You know, it, it had been bothering me. And so when I wrote it, it was great because I didn't give it to her probably for a year or so after I wrote it. Um, I, I didn't know how she was going to respond, but she knew exactly the house and the moment in our childhood that I was talking about. And so did my mom, which is, which is interesting. Like they both knew, you know, what I was talking about. And there, there is, and, and it's weird in this pandemic, 
that the song sort of also was very apropos of now. Like, who doesn't want to get out of this, like, you know, world we're in right now and get in a car and just drive back to that summer, you know, under the arc of the sky or, you know, the summer trees and just drive, you know? I mean, it, it's, so it's funny that that was just a, a weird coincidence that it sort of is speaking to people, I think, a little bit now because we, we are more retrospective and introspective right now. Because who wants to be here now? Nobody. <laughs> On your album, there is one cover, the Ode to Billy Joe, which was originally recorded by Bobby Gentry. And I'm always curious uh, about covers because they're so, there, 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 there might be one on an album. And what about that song meant something to you that you wanted to include it in uh, It's About Time? There's two Correct. cover songs. Downtown Train is a cover song. I already recorded that one. That's even weirder that I recorded a song twice. And I'm like, you know, I just do shit. I don't think about it. And then I'm like, wow, that is kind of weird that I did that. I don't know. I just sort of thought it was a good idea. And so did everybody else. As far as Ode to Billy Joe, I had recorded that for a friend, Tom Scott, in uh, probably 1998 or 99, around, around then. And... It was a great version. He had a great band. His, his wife, Lynn Scott, was a good, good friend of mine. She's since passed away. And she produced it. And it was on his record. So I had a great version of it, but it was on someone else's record. So I started playing it live probably seven years ago. And people love it. And after I was done with the six songs, I went to Ilya Tuzinski, who's one of the producers. I said, I want to add these two songs. What do you think? And he's like, yeah. Okay, great. So I just went back down to Nashville and he and I just built these the, the last two tracks, which were Ode to Billy Joe and Downtown Train. And Ode to Billy Joe was one of those songs where like I remember the room sitting in the room with my record player, with my sister, and just playing it over and over and over and over and over. And that year was a, a spectacular year for songs because it was like Dock of the Bay. I mean it was there were just unbelievable songs. And because that she, she told the story and she was so beautiful and it kind of had this funky groove to it and it was soulful and they even did a TV movie about it for crying out loud. I mean, that was a huge song. So that was really one of those songs that kind of just went in there, you know? If there's like one of those songs that are in there as your building blocks, you know, there's a bunch of Beatles songs in there, a couple of Led Zeppelin songs in there, maybe a Dionne Warwick song, but that song, Oh Jubilee Joe, is there for sure. So... That's why I just, I just thought I would do it on my own record. You know, I've been doing it and, and, and I like, I love the song. I love to sing it. So it was a whimsical last minute edition. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my mom gave me this record player and I had a microphone. And so I would sing, I would sing to whatever record, but I was always trying to find women, you know, female vocalists that I could sing to. So you know, Joan Baez when I was really young, and it went on from there. But uh, just wanted to to say to you that you were always one of those uh, artists that inspired me as as a kid and and a, and beyond to um to to sing and play music. I play music myself and it for fun, and um, it's really great to have other female rock role models out there for musicians that are that are coming up and you were one of the the first and i have to say it's about time uh it is about time that you came out with another album because this is a great album and and i hope everyone 
uh, downloads it and plays it and um, adds it to their uh, to their 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 car playlist or whatever else because it's just really fun, great songs, and um, I'm so glad that you were able to take the time to spend with us today to talk about it. Um, it's a pleasure meeting you. Um, we would love to have you down to Memphis one day for a concert series taping if you're ever coming this direction, but just really wanted to thank you for the time you spent with us today. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Patty. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Patty Smythe. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.